I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hey, everyone. Happy Monday with this part two of the polygamy episodes. It's so interesting because I always plan on just doing one part episodes. It's never really in the plans for me to spread it out over time. But when I recorded last episode, I recorded for about an hour and 43 minutes. And that was much too long for one episode. So I cut it down. But then where I cut it off, I felt like the second half was going to be too short. And thankfully, I had a lot of other research that I had done and things that I could add to make the episode a little bit longer. So I am re-recording the whole second half of that episode right now after I've added a few other tidbits to the script, so on and so forth. And I know you're waiting on pins and needles for me to get back into it, but there's a few housekeeping things that I have to do first. Firstly, I want to remind you that you can join the Angry Neighborhood Feminist Patreon group. That would be so fantastic. For everyone on Patreon, they actually got this episode early. I released this episode on December 20th for all of the feminist faves. And if you want to become a feminist fave, that is an $8 level where you get all of these episodes early and ad-free. Rarely are you going to get them days early. This is kind of a special exception because it was a two-parter episode on accident. But I've also started doing little recaps, roundups, whatever you want to call them, after each episode on Monday, where I pop onto Patreon for a little bit and kind of just do a rundown of what the episode was about, anything that I might have missed or wanted to add from my research but didn't put in the episode. 
things like that. It's also just like a little check-in and way for me to say hi to all of you. But if you're not interested in that, you can also join the Angry Feminist Book Club while it's still the book club because soon it's going to be Mad Gavin with Madigan starting in January of 2024. But I have covered so many amazing books in the past year that are ready for you to listen to and binge on Patreon. And right now I am almost done working on the script for the Bell Jar episodes. It's taking a while and I'm kind of doing both at the same time. So you'll probably get a couple different episodes quickly in succession or maybe I'll just put up one really long episode at the end of the month that's just covering everything the Bell Jar. We shall see. And you can join the Angry Feminist Book Club for $5 a month, and you get all of the Angry Feminist Book Club content when you join the Feminist Faves group as well. And I actually, if anyone's still listening at this point, if everyone doesn't just fast forward through the beginning mumbo jumbo, I'm feeling pretty giving myself. And I've worked on some little crocheted items and things like that that I wanted to put up as merch, but I was thinking that I might want to give a little special gift to anyone who decides to join Patreon between now. So for my listeners on the regular feed, that would be Monday, December 25th. For one week until January 1st, which is the next Monday, and anyone who joins Patreon within that time becomes a member of the book club or a feminist fave will receive a little card and a little gift from me after the new year as a thanks for being a new Patreon member. But I also want to give a big thanks to all of my Patreon members who have been with me since the beginning and throughout this first year of being up on the platform. So of course, I'm going to send all of you little tidbits as well. I'm pretty sure I have everyone's addresses up on Patreon through that, but if you get an email from me reaching out about how to best get something to you, that's what that will be about. So for anyone who wants to become a Patreon, you will get a little special present from me after the new year. You have between Monday, December 25th, Christmas Day, until the following Monday on January 1st. And then the other thing that I just wanted to kind of shout out really quick is that I just started working for a really, really fantastic network that is all through Patreon. It's called Grab Bag Collab, and I'm editing for one of their shows, which is called Shut the Fuck Up, Nick Lachey, which is a recap podcast that covers the Netflix show Love is Blind, and it is hosted by two podcasters who I really admire and look up to. Their names are Daisy Egan and Ellen Marsh. They are both Broadway stars. Daisy actually won a Tony when she was 12 years old for her role in The Secret Garden. What a fucking badass. And the network was also started by Amber Hunt, who is a amazing award-winning journalist. I think she won a Pulitzer Prize, but I don't want to be just throwing things out there that she hasn't won, but I know she's won some big things. And then I'm also working with an amazing woman named Amanda, who I'm still learning a little bit more about. But it is a female-run network that is all through Patreon, and it supports other female-run independent podcasts for the most part, shows that that aren't with any networks or maybe are more of a passion project, things like that. There's so many wonderful shows already available, and I'm pretty sure you just join for $5 and 
all of the shows become available to you. It's such a good idea. It's such a cool environment, both as a listener and as someone who's now working with them. And I just wanted to give them a little shout out because they are fantastic. So you can also go to Patreon and join Grab Bag Collab. Okay, I'm sure there's other things that I could fill you in on and say, but I'm just going to get into this episode. So now let's get into one of the biggest events in FLDS history. Just before dawn on July 26, 1953, 102 Arizona officers of public safety and soldiers from the Arizona National Guard entered the Short Creek compound. The entire community was taken into custody, with the exception of six people who were apparently on the compound but were not fundamentalist Mormons. Maybe they were working for them? I don't know. That's strange. But I saw that in multiple resources. 263 children were taken and placed into state care. 36 men were arrested, and they also took 86 women. Arizona Governor John Howard Pyle, who was the one who authorized the raid, initially called it a momentous police action against insurrection. He described the FLDS as the foulest conspiracy you could possibly imagine, that it was designed to produce white slaves. (laughs) Really don't... Don't really love the uh, vernacular you're using there, sir. We could have just used one of those words instead of having to bring whiteness into it. But nevertheless, Governor Pyle was horrified by the stories that he had heard of rape, incest, and men taking young girls as brides. And he knew we had to do something to put an end to the crimes. He said there had been a wholesale of abuse and enslavement of children, especially for the girls who were forced into a, quote, shameful mockery of marriage. And that's, I think, what he means. It's like child trafficking, child slavery, child enslavement, whatever you want to call it. But we didn't have to bring whiteness into it just because they're all white people. It just seems weird and super racist, and I don't like it. Governor Pyle went on. Here is a community dedicated to the wicked theory that every maturing girl child should be forced into bondage of multiple wifehood with men of all ages for the sole purpose of producing more children to be reared to become more chattels of this totally lawless enterprise. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. I don't know if it's chattel or chattel, but hopefully you know what I mean. Another supposed reason for the raid were the citizens of Arizona complaining about the increase in school taxes connected to the abundance of FLDS kids. At this time, there were still a lot of fundamentalist kids that were just going to regular public schools, and it was really, really fucking shit up. The county welfare department was also struggling to support the large number of quote-unquote single women who were actually part of plural marriages but were not recognized legally in the state who applied for government assistance for their dependent children. Taxpayers were pissed. (laughs) So back to the raid. Let's get into the events of what happened. Governor Pyle actually called on 100 reporters to come and witness the raid, which is something that I think he would soon regret, because what the reporters captured were images of crying and screaming children and weeping mothers as they were ripped apart. Articles and covers in Time and Newsweek and other publications covered the raid, and many media outlets described it as odious and un-American. Governor Pyle actually lost his bid for re-election the next year and blamed the fallout from the raid for his failing political career. I would say so. 
On top of all of this, the government was clearly not prepared for this raid and definitely not prepared for the number of children that they would have to take into custody, which led to these kids living in really poor living conditions for quite a long time. Though the backlash began right away against the raid, some of the women and children would remain in state custody for two years. People in FLDS have classified this event as traumatic and life-changing. Children were ripped from their families, and mothers suffered fighting to get those children back. It's really heartbreaking because when I look at this whole circumstance, it isn't the mother's fault, but it really seems like it's the women who were hurting so much and did everything that they could to be with their children and bring them home or at least be with them while they were in these terrible conditions. None of this is the fault of the women and girls in the FLDS. The responsibility is solely on the men. A woman named Sherry Hammond, who was 10 years old at the time of the raid, remembers, Me and my sister went into the garden and hid behind the bushes, and this policeman came looking for us. He said, Get out, ma'am, to my sister. And my sister said, Get the hell out of here. Which I love because I feel like FLDS kids wouldn't normally swear. It has been proven by some that removal of children is not an adequate way to disband a dangerous group or practice because, as we will see, that traumatic events only bolster dangerous cults. The plight of the FLDS roused sympathy, and the general public saw the raid as a threat of states' power taking over individual rights. And for a little bit of context, this was around the time of the Cold War and the growing Red Scare when the threat of totalitarian state power over individual rights was a real fear in most Americans' minds. So their perspective of seeing the government come in and take down this religious organization or whatever seemed like a real hindrance on their individual rights as Americans. And people really did start to defend the FLDS's right to practice their religion and raise their families as they see fit. Religious leaders and political rivals all accused Governor Pyle of using excessive force. It's interesting, though, because there was one article that I found that was from an LDS newspaper called Desert News in Salt Lake City. So this is the regular Latter-day Saints, not the fundamentalists. They seemed to applaud this behavior from the government, saying that this raid would prevent the fundamentalists from becoming, quote, a cancer of a sort that is beyond hope and repair. But the general public seemed to think, hey, they want to practice polygamy, just Leave them alone. Let them do their thing. And some of you may be thinking that too. But the problem when a group lives off the grid and away from any kind of government assistance or intervention, the rates for abuse of children in particular goes way up as there's no one there to regulate what's going on within the group. As for the result of this raid, it isn't as fine as I think Pyle would have hoped. Charges of statutory rape contributing to the delinquency of a minor were dropped. The men pled guilty to conspiracy to violate laws against bigamy, as well as open and notorious cohabitation. One-year suspended sentences were given to all the men, and many promptly returned to Short Creek, like nothing ever happened. Two years later, nearly all of the men, women, and children had returned to the town, and the already incredibly separatist and isolated group withdrew further from the rest of society. There would also be commemorative celebrations each July following their return to Short Creek to mark their success over the government and keep in mind that the outside world hates them and that they should live in constant fear. 
The new generation was raised to believe that they were true martyrs and that the world wanted them dead because of what they believe, further isolating them and scaring the crap out of these kids. I mean, they would learn about the Short Creek Raid as part of a standard feature in church sermons, as well as in school lessons and textbooks studied by all FLDS children. Leaders also used the raid as an excuse to tighten the restrictions further on its members, particularly on how women are supposed to dress and what kind of hairstyles they are to wear. Though it seemed that nothing really was going to happen to the men or this group as a whole, polygamy was still illegal in both Arizona and Utah. But due to the fear of the public's response, fundamentalists were allowed to flourish with polygamy for generations. In fact, the community at Short Creek doubled its population each decade after the raid. By the year 2000, more than 5,000 fundamentalists resided in Short Creek and the surrounding cities of Colorado City, Arizona, and Hilldale, Utah. There were another estimated 10,000 members scattered across the West. Leroy S. Johnson led until his death in 1986, and at that time, leadership went to Rulon Jeffs. And Rulon had worked really hard to raise in the ranks of this church. He became a successful accountant for them helping him gain access to prominent families in the church. He even married one of the church's leaders, Hugh B. Brown's daughter, Zola Brown. And when Rulong got to Short Creek, he joined the Council of Friends. Now that he was part of the council, he wanted to fix it up. And since he was kind of a big deal, they let him. Eventually, though, he caused the council to split. He was cutting people off, firing them left and right, until it was pretty much down to just Rulon and Leroy, before his death, obviously. So when Rulon took over, somehow, Rulon got everyone to agree that instead of the church being some sort of democracy with a council, that there should just be one leader, one prophet, to rule them all. Very Lord of the Rings. And we know throughout history that having one leader to be in charge of everyone and everything never ends well. If you can find one time in history that a totalitarian regime or government was successful and didn't make its people hate them, let me know. After the death of Leroy Johnson, they advocated complete obedience to their prophet, Rulon Jeffs, who they called Uncle Rulon, and they considered him to be the one. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. <laughs> 
The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine. Coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. One and only prophet, the key holder and the mouthpiece of God. Placement marriage seemed to become much more frequent and common and a little bit more intense than ever before. Placement marriage had been practiced in the FLDS since 1940s, and in the 1950s, it became more and more common for younger and younger girls to marry without their parents' knowledge or consent, especially if their parents were considered out of harmony with the leaders. Leroy Johnson did this a lot. But Leroy was also part of a council, and there was more of a democratic understanding from what I've gathered of how they went about choosing these partnerships and so on and so forth. But then when Rulon became the leader, he became the one person that God would communicate with and tell who was supposed to marry who. And uh, I don't know about you all, but I do not believe that Rulon Jeffs is getting messages from any sort of God. So I think he's just choosing wives and husbands for his own twisted game. Under the placement marriage system, young members of the FLDS were forbidden from dating before marriage and were even discouraged from falling in love until after they're married, which is just so sad to me. Like, I wouldn't want to be giving vows to someone that I don't already love. Kids in the FLDS are not allowed to be anything more than friends with any other member of the community until the prophet arranges a spouse for them. A young man, usually around the age of 21, would approach the prophet when they feel ready for marriage, and the prophet would select a wife for them. Young women and girls, on the other hand, once they hit puberty or when their parents saw fit, they were also taken to the prophet for placement. Rulon also started to speak more openly and often about one of Joseph Smith's doctrines, that a man must have at least three wives in order to reach the highest degree of glory in heaven, which made the men on the compound very competitive. And Rulon would be a prime example to his followers of a good polygamist man, having had around 75 wives in his lifetime. He also set a new disturbing precedent in the FLDS as many of his wives were underage. Now, I tried to get some more research done on Rulon in the preparation for this episode because I know that I'd heard more about him in the past, particularly from John Krakauer's book, Under the Banner of Heaven, which again, I highly, highly recommend. But I do recall that people overall preferred Rulon to their next leader, Warren Jeffs, Rulon's son, who took over after his father's death in 2002. Now, Warren Jeffs is the ultimate villain in this story. The leaders just get worse and worse and worse. And Warren Jeffs, my friends, is the worst of the fucking worst. His villain origin story begins when he was much younger, when at just 21 years old, he became the principal of the FLDS private school, Ulta Academy. I don't know why anyone would trust a principal role to a 21-year-old, let alone even a teaching role for a bunch of kids, but okay. He is the boss's son, after all. And Warren would choose a uh, peculiar spot for his office to be at this school. He chose his office to be in the basement, with a little window near the ceiling with a clear view of the playground. I feel like now is a good time as any to mention that Warren Jeffs is a pedophile. 
When Warren became prophet, he ordered all children to be pulled out of public schools and all had to enter Alta Academy, where Warren Jeffs could control the curriculum. He may also be a murderer, as many suggest that he had a hand in the death of his father to ensure a quicker rise to power. He's devious as fuck, and I wouldn't put it past him. Now, with Warren in charge, security also amped way up. Short Creek once just looked like a regular enclosed community, but once Warren took over, he had his followers build huge gray walls built of concrete that raised as high as all of the houses to physically shut out his community from the rest of the world. In the memoirs I've read of the people who lived there in this time, they talk about how bleak it was after Rulon died due to all of the harsh changes that Warren made. Under Warren's rule, he would begin to punish his followers by reassigning their wives, children, and homes to other men. He would banish young boys once they hit puberty from the community to create less competition for the older men. This would leave these boys homeless, without an education, and without any resources, completely excommunicated from their families. Warren also would beat and abuse people who disobeyed him. He would send women off to live in isolated areas of the country by themselves, away from everything, as punishment for their behavior. The rules changed all the time, molding to Warren Jeff's needs and twisted desires. Following his father's death, Warren is reported to have said to the high-ranking FLDS officials, I won't say much, but I will say this, hands off my father's wives. Although if I were to do a true impression of Warren Jeffs, it would sound something more like this. I won't say much, but I will say this. Hands off, my father's wife. He speaks so slow and he whistles with his S's. I can't even do it. This man is insufferable on so many levels and I hate him. When he addressed his father's widows, he said, You women will live as if father is still alive and in the next room. Within a week, he had married all but two of his father's wives. And I'm going to remind myself here by scrolling back to see how many wives this guy had because it was it was a lot. Let's see. Rulon Jeffs had how many wives? So Rulon would have 75 wives throughout his lifetime. I don't know how many he had when he passed away, but that's a lot of wives. As for the two women who decided not to marry Warren Jeffs, one of them was Rebecca Wall, who fled the FLDS compound, and another woman refused to marry Warren and was subsequently prohibited from ever marrying again. Naomi Jessup, one of Rulon's former wives, was the first to marry Warren, and she then became his favorite wife and confidant. You're a favorite wife and a confidant. I watched Golden Girls all morning. I apologize. But I feel like I feel like I've been talking so much lately about parents and people that have favorites in their lives. And this needs to stop. Stop picking favorites. Love your family equally. Warren, why did you have to choose a favorite? Warren would also eventually marry Naomi's 12-year-old sister, who I'm going to call MJ because she was underage at the time. This would not be the only massively underage girl that he would marry. He would also marry essentially every daughter in an entire family, Blackmore family, and they were all forced to move from Canada to marry Warren. 
One of the Blackmore daughters was just 13 years old when she married him. It's estimated that Warren Jeffs would eventually have up to 78 wives, beating his father in that count, and father about 60 children. It's estimated that 29 of these women were the former wives of his father, and 56 of the wives were sisters. Okay, well, I answered my own question. Sorry about that. I find it so fucked up that he married groups of sisters as well. I mean, I guess part of it could be a good thing because you have your family with you. I have read stories of women who were in sister-wife relationships with their actual sisters. And they said it was really helpful because those sisters could be trusted with their kids and things like that, and they felt like they had a confidant. So I feel like as long as you and your sister got along, maybe that would be a positive thing. But it's so fucked up to think of one man coming in and marrying a group of daughters. Former U.S. Attorney Special Prosecutor Angela Goodwin later on would testify that 24 of these wives were underage at the time of their marriage to Warren Jeffs. 24! I mean, and on top of all of that, Warren was also involved in conducting the marriages of at least 67 underage girls to old-ass FLDS men. Fuck this guy. And if Rulon and Leroy held a lot of importance on the appearance and the behavior of women, Warren took it to a whole other level. Keep sweet, that stupid fucking phrase was drilled even harder into these young girls' minds. And it now took an even deeper meaning in which women and girls must smile at all times, obey the boys, men, and adults around them, Never complain or speak their minds, but remain as delicate and pretty ornaments for the men around them. In a sermon in 2003, Warren Jeffs stated that the blessings of the priesthood had been removed from Short Creek and that they all had to move to a new location. He hoped to prepare for a perfect place where God's chosen ones could wait for his return. Popping in on my AirPods for a second here, so sorry if the sound is shitty, but he definitely did this in order to avoid the authorities. He called this new place, which was in El Dorado, Texas, Yearning for Zion, or YFZ. It would become home to 500 people who were all relocated from Short Creek. Many would remain in Short Creek and other compounds as you had to be asked to join the holiest of ones. The ranch's dedication ceremony occurred on January 1st, 2005, and that would actually be the last time that most people saw of Warren Jeffs for a very long time. Texas officials became aware of Warren Jeffs' sexual crimes when in July of 2004, his nephew, Brent Jeffs, filed charges against him regarding an assault that had occurred in the 1980s. In his memoir, Lost Boys, which I haven't read but is now on my list, he depicts the abuse inflicted on himself from when he was aged five and six, along with the abuses against his brothers and other family members. One of his brothers, Clayne, took their own life after accusing Warren Jeffs of assault from when he was a child. These would be just a few people who were abused by Jeffs. Other family members of his have come out as well, including other nephews, and two of his own children. He was charged in 2005 in Mojave County, Arizona for sexual assault on a minor and with conspiracy to commit sexual misconduct with a minor for allegedly arranging a marriage between a then 14-year-old girl and her 19-year-old first cousin on April 2001. 
This girl, who we now know to be Alyssa Wall. Alyssa was the younger sister of Rebecca Wall, one of Rulon Jeff's wives who refused to marry Warren Jeffs. Alyssa testified that she had begged Rulon Jeffs when he was the leader to let her wait until she was a little bit older or choose to marry another man for her to marry as her cousin was awful. He was abusive. He was mean. And she just could not believe that God would want her to marry this person. And apparently Rulon Jeffs was a little bit more sympathetic to her plight, but his son would not be. Alyssa was forced to marry her cousin, who would allegedly beat and often rape Alyssa. After many, many years of his abuse, she thankfully eventually left her husband, Alan, and the community. But Warren Jeffs couldn't be found. In July, the Arizona Attorney General's office distributed wanted posters, offering $10,000 for information leading them to Warren Jeff's arrest and conviction. Warren's brother, Seth, was arrested under suspicion of hiding a fugitive on October 28, 2005. During Seth's court case, an FBI agent testified that Seth had told him that he did not know where his brother was and that he wouldn't reveal his whereabouts even if he did. Seth was convicted in May of 2006 and sentenced to three years probation and a $2,500 fine and went back to his life. In April 2006, Utah issued an arrest warrant for Warren Jeffs on felony charges of accomplice rape of a teenage girl between 14 and 18 years old. This made him wanted in multiple states as well. So it was time to bring in the big guns. On May 6, the FBI placed Warren Jeffs on their top 10 most wanted list, offering a $60,000 reward, which would soon be bumped to $100,000, and put him right next to Osama bin Laden. On the night of August 28, 2006, Highway Trooper Eddie Dutchover was driving around Interstate 15 in Clark County, Nevada, just outside Las Vegas when he noticed that the temporary license plate on a 2007 red Cadillac Escalade wasn't visible. When the car was stopped, Warren Jeffs initially gave the trooper another name. But thankfully, Eddie was no dummy, and he recognized Jeffs from the wanted posters that had been very frequently distributed to all of the police stations in the country. There were two others in the car with Warren, his favorite wife Naomi and his brother Isaac. You can learn more about what Warren was up to during his time on the run by watching the documentary series Preaching Evil on Peacock, which I highly recommend, where they actually interview Naomi herself, who tells the whole story. She's a bit cagey on some things. I'm sure some other stuff happened. She also seems like she was incredibly abused and manipulated herself. But it was such a fascinating documentary to look at the way that her mind worked in the experiences that she had while on the run with her husband. When they were found, they almost looked nothing like they had while they were living on the FLDS compounds. Warren Jeffs was photographed during his arrest wearing a white t-shirt with mountain outfitters emblazoned on it and a mountain scenery, some army green cargo shorts, black socks, and black tennis shoes. Naomi was wearing a pink polo shirt with her hair pulled back in, not a pompadour and a braid, but a loose ponytail. Other images of the couple during their days on the run show Naomi with her whole head braided like Bob Marley. Yikes. And there are images of the couple donned in all leather on the backs of a motorcycle. 
There's also another strange picture of Warren Jeffs in what looks like a hotel room wearing a shirt that reads one size fits all with another pair of cargo shorts. It doesn't seem like he was too picky about the dress code while on the run, huh? In the Escalade was stacks of $100 bills, multiple cell phones, wigs, and sunglasses. The last two most likely used for disguises. Warren's trial began on September 11th, 2007. How ominous. And on September 25th, my anniversary, aww, he was found guilty of two counts of being an accomplice to rape and sentenced to 10 years to life in prison. Then he had his trials in Arizona in 2008, and he was up to some shenanigans during this trial. He decided to begin partaking in hunger strikes, which his doctors and attorneys claimed were for religious reasons, but he was eventually ordered by the judge to be force-fed at the Arizona jail in August of 2009. Two years later, he was sentenced to life in prison on August 9, 2011. Shortly after his sentencing, he was sent to the hospital in critical condition after excessive fasting. So I'm not sure why this trial took so long. Maybe it was due to all of the hunger strike bullshit or other legal mumbo jumbo. And I feel like I've heard the answer to this question somewhere in my many hours of watching and reading and listening to information about the FLDS, but I just can't recall specifics and I couldn't find any solid answers anywhere on this. But I would assume that his lawyers were probably putting the justice system through as much of a rigmarole as possible. And I did see online that he was trying to kind of fight the case that was going on in Arizona, Utah, whichever one was first. He was trying to fight that, and maybe that's what made it take longer, but fuck, it was really drawn out. But thankfully, he was sentenced to life in prison plus 20 years, which I call the Keith Ranieri conviction now, and he will be eligible for parole in 2038. Good luck with that, sir. So yay, the guy's behind bars now, so maybe his reign of terror and forced plural marriages of underage girls will be over. Think again. Warren Jeffs would continue to rule over the FLDS as profit from prison for years and years to come to this very day. But before we talk about today, there were a lot of other things that happened within the group outside of Warren Jeffs during all of this time. So let's rewind back to 2008, Warren sitting in jail, but shit still going down on the ranch. Because while Warren was stuck in jail, the government was planning to take more action against his group. Authorities had suspected that Warren Jeffs had also been forcing underaged girls to marry much older men, and they needed to get in and protect the women and children, as well as arrest a bunch of asshole men. On March 29, 2008, a local domestic violence shelter hotline took a call from a woman identifying herself as Sarah, claiming to be a 16-year-old victim of physical and sexual violence at the FLDS YFZ Ranch. When investigators traced the call, they connected it to a much older woman, not a 16-year-old girl, who had actually been arrested in the past for making hoax calls, but... Nevertheless, this still triggered a larger investigation into the child welfare on the ranch. They cordoned off YFZ Ranch on April 3rd, 2008, with law enforcement officers armed with automatic weapons, SWAT teams with snipers, helicopters, and other teams as backup. They surrounded the ranch. This is even more intense than 1953. And of course, 
This happening brought this prophecy of the government coming back to take them down once again to life. These members have been terrified of something like this happening for generations. And now here it's happening again. Troopers and child welfare officials searched the ranch, including all the safes, vaults, locked desk drawers, beds, everything. They found incredibly disturbing things in their search. They discovered a bed in the temple, which followers insisted at the time was only used for rest during long services. But stories from survivors and other evidence suggest that it was used for much more nefarious reasons. Trigger warning, this part is bad. So fast forward about 30 seconds if you need to. They also found photographs and audio recordings. There were images of Warren Jeffs and his wives getting married, posing happily or appearing happy for their wedding photos. Multiple images were found of Warren Jeffs marrying underage girls and even pictures of himself kissing these girls. They're out there online, but I do not suggest you look them up. They also discovered a damning and horrifying audio tape of a 12-year-old girl whom Warren had just married, being raped by the prophet. Interviews with children revealed that several underage girls had been forced into spiritual marriage with much older men as soon as they reached puberty and were made pregnant as soon as possible. When on the ranch, officials saw many young girls, some as young as 13 years old, who were pregnant. Oh, it's just so devastating to me. Forced marriage is something that happens all over the world, and I'm sure that there are a lot of differences culturally, and there's different groups out there, and there's people who have done it for a long time, and they feel like it's okay. I don't know. It's just, it's so devastating to me for anyone to be forced into a marriage with someone that they did not choose to love themselves, that, you know, a love is being forced upon them. But adding to the fact that these are just kids, these are children, they've never had any sort of identity for themselves. And here they are being forced to submit to these old men at such a young age and be abused and tortured by them and made to be pregnant and go through pregnancy and childbirth when you don't even know what the fuck is going on with your body. Oh, it just, oh, my heart breaks for all of those girls. By April 8th, Judge Barbara Walther, not Barbara Walter, ordered more than 533 women and children to be removed from the ranch. On April 10th, law enforcement completed their search and gave the control of the compound back to the FLDS. The reaction to this raid from FLDS members was also similar to 1953, calling the raid a witch hunt and referring to their actions as religious persecution. More media attention was given to the mothers who described the treatment by the government as inhumane. Represented by Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid, the mothers sought a writ of mandamus against Judge Walther for her rulings of emergency removal of the children, as they believed they didn't have enough evidence to do this. And the court agreed. It ruled. The department did not present any evidence of danger to the physical health and safety of any male children or any female children who had not yet reached puberty. It's interesting that they specified who had not reached puberty because we know that young girls and boys who reached puberty are treated terribly. Many of the mothers appeared on Larry King Live and included a guided tour of the ranch. The mothers did, however, refuse to comment on the allegations of child abuse. I'm going to play a little clip of that interview now. 
As to Sally, can you say that you never thought, living the way you were living, in the ranch and the like, that you were doing anything wrong? I never thought I was doing anything wrong. You never, thought plural, you never thought plural marriage was wrong? No, sir, I do not believe that. You never thought that a relationship between, say, older men and teenage girls and younger were wrong? I would not. I would, for my own daughter, I would advise her to wait until she was of legal age. I would not want her to get married younger than that. But did you see others at the ranch getting married younger? Not that I'm aware of. So, so you have never, to your knowledge, seen a younger girl marry an older person? Not that I'm aware of. Marilyn, had you? Not that I have ever seen. Esther, had you? Not that I have ever seen. So all these stories are false or just you haven't seen them? I believe they're false. I believe they are false. Me also. So you're saying there were no young girls at that, at that ranch ever, ever married to, uh, say, men in their 20s or 30s? Not to our knowledge. You never saw anyone having sex with an underage girl? No, sir. No, sir. So the only thing that you dealt with was ma pluralistic marriages, marriages to more than one person. Yes. Yes. Yes, we've seen that. Right. Did you ever think anything, uh, Sally, I'll ask you, did you ever think anything was wrong with that? No, sir, I do not believe so. But, sir, the reason I am here is because our children need us. And they have been torn from us illegally with officers with guns. The children were ordered to be returned to their families within 10 days of the raid. And later, the Supreme Court went a step further, stating that on the record before us, removal of the children was not warranted. I mentioned earlier that removing kids is not going to be beneficial to ending this group, but it still really, really hurts me that these kids had to go back to such an abusive environment. There were some charges brought against the men of the compound after this raid, though. Raymond Jessup was sentenced to 10 years in prison and fined $8,000 in 2009 for sexually assaulting a 16-year-old girl in 2004. Alan Keat was sentenced to 33 years in prison in December of 2009 for fathering a child with a 15-year-old girl. In January 2010, Michael George Emack pled no contest to a sexual assault charge and was sentenced to seven years for marrying a six-year-old girl on the YFZ ranch in 2004. She had given birth to a son less than a year later. He also pled no contest to a bigamy charge later that year and received another seven-year sentence to run concurrently. Three other men were held up on charges in 2010, including Merrill Leroy Jessup, Leahy Barlow Jeffs, and Abraham Harker Jeffs. A year after the raid, two-thirds of the families were back on the ranch, and the sect leaders had promised to end underage marriages. Yeah, right. Because as we know, the FLDS is still going strong to this day. 
still being led by Warren Jeffs from behind bars, and he still rules with an iron fist. He decides who marries whom from behind bars, still sets up underage girls with much older men, still controlling their behavior, their dress, everything. There are so many wonderful memoirs written out there by more recent members of the FLDS. One of them written by Warren Jeff's daughter, Rachel Jeff's, called Breaking Free, How I Escaped Polygamy, the FLDS Cult, and My Father Warren Jeff's is particularly insightful. And I would also recommend Escape, a memoir by Carolyn Jessup. It gives you a much deeper understanding and a bigger picture of what was going on while Warren Jeffs was leading the group and also how he went about controlling the group from behind bars to this very day. On May 5th, 2017, a House Bill 99 became effective in Utah as a response to Brown C. Buman. An action was filed in 2011 by polygamous patriarch Cody Brown, along with his wives Mary, Janelle, Christine, and Robin, best known for their reality TV show Sister Wives, who belong to another sect of fundamentalists, Latter-day Saints, under a different rulership, but it's very similar to the FLDS. I think I've probably seen a couple episodes of Sister Wives in its running time, but I never got into it, and I know that there's actually a bunch of shit happening with them right now, but I I can't get into it all. But I will get into this part. Their show got them in big trouble as attorneys and legal experts watching the show claimed that the Browns' involvement in the series may expose them to criminal prosecution. Yeah, dummies. (laughs) Cody argued that only his first marriage is a legal marriage while the others are simply commitments. But experts argue that since the family has lived as a unit for 16 years and Cody has had children with all four of the women that he lives with, the relationships could be considered common-law marriages. Also, the state code identifies bigamy through cohabitation, not just legal marriage contracts. The case was eventually dismissed, but House Bill 99 also aims to implement harsher punishments toward polygamists who are also engaged in other criminal activities such as child abuse and domestic violence. They also made it so that if there is bigamy along with other crimes, instead of a third-degree felony, it would become a second degree. The bill was signed into law by Utah Governor Gary Herbert on March 28, 2017. In spite of these laws, though, many members of the FLDS Church and other religions continue to practice polygamy without much restraint. The lack of prosecution of polygamy and bigamy is due to a lack of evidence, a lack of priority within law enforcement, a lack of resources, a potential influx of orphaned children, and a fear about going up against religious freedom, which is protected under the First Amendment, which reads... Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. In April 2023, the FLDS was in the news once again, as mothers who had left the sect worried for their missing children. Kids from families who had left the cult were just being taken. And this was most likely due to a series of revelations that Warren Jeffs released from prison in 2022, including a call for ex-members to come back into the fold. So he's having people kidnap these children just to bring them back into the group. And what's even more concerning, he allegedly told his followers that they are all to die within the next five and a half years in order to reach heaven, making some, including myself, 
incredibly worried about some sort of Jonestown or Heaven's Gate situation where there is either forced suicide, coerced suicide, or even murder in order to make this happen. One child who was missing in 2022 was eventually found to have been kidnapped by Heber Jeffs, Warren Jeffs' nephew, who was charged then with taking the 10-year-old girl. The court documents allege that Heber was acting on his uncle's instructions to call for the children of ex-members to be returned to the church. By 2023, investigators have stated that members of the FLDS have spread out in order to avoid the authorities, some moving to North Dakota, communicating with the prophet via Zoom. Warren's son, Halliman, has also stepped forward in leadership now, assisting his father, and he's also been given the authority to perform polygamous marriages. To end this episode, I want to talk about the difference between polygamy and polyamory, like I promised you all in the beginning of last episode. According to Psychology Today, polyamory is a relatively new buzzword, unknown even just 20 years ago. Polyamory is often confused with polygamy, for some good reason, as both are unconventional in contemporary Western society, and neither are practiced by the mainstream. They also both start with poly, which is the Greek root word for many, and both terms describe a multi-partner relationship. But even though there are some similarities, there are many significant differences. At its most basic, polygamy means multiple spouses, whereas polyamory means multiple loves. Aww. Polyamory is a consensual, non-monogamous relationship, which can be sexual and or romantic. One of the biggest differences between polyamory and polygamy is the gender of the partners. In polyamory, anyone of any gender can have multiple partners, but polygamy is almost universally heterosexual and patriarchal. Only one person, the man, is permitted to marry multiple spouses. Religion, as I've stated, is also one of the main differences between polyamory and polygamy, as polygamy is a religious practice. Though polyamory has loosely been associated with some religions as well. The majority of polyamorous relationships have nothing to do with religion at all, though, and some have gravitated to more unconventional spiritual communities instead of a more restrictive religion like the LDS. The word polyamory was coined in 1990 by a woman named Morning Glory Ravenheart, love that name, and she was a priestess of a sect called the Church of All Worlds, which you know I will be googling immediately. <laughs> Throughout much of history since the 1900s, feminists and other anarchists have advocated for non-monogamy as a cure for everything from capitalist oppression to men's tyrannical ownership of women. During the free love movement of the 1960s, the idea flourished even further. And today with the internet, the idea of polyamory is able to spread even further through our society. And many people see it as being a positive and loving, healthy lifestyle. There's actually a couple on TikTok, but I see them on Instagram because I'm an old lady, that are called the Polly Couple, and they used to come into my old job and sell their clothes together, and I never said anything, but I was like, oh my god, I watch your videos all the time. It's so fascinating to see how polyamorous couples live because I don't think I, well, one, I don't desire to have another partner. Two, it sounds exhausting and expensive. And dating is horrible. I hate it, so I'm not going to do it. Today, polygamy is most common in Asia and the Middle East, as well as Africa. That good old polygamy belt. 
And it's also in these places that women are also usually limited from accessing public spaces or driving, making it difficult for them to find work or get schooling that would allow them freedom and control over their own lives. Marriages are also often arranged. And that's a completely different story from the FLDS, but also very important to talk about. Education can be seen as a big difference between polyamory and polygamy as well, as polyamory is more common in areas that allow women greater access to education and careers in places like the United States, Australia, and Canada. So none of this is to say that a multiple partner relationship cannot be successful or saying that it is inherently abusive or wrong. That is just not the case. The thing that is wrong here is the tyrannical, abusive, terrible ways that a fundamentalist cult has treated its women and children. Kids having to marry grown adults is abuse. Kids being forced into marital beds with these older men is abuse. And polygamy, being inherently a patriarchal system, is going to be to the detriment of women no matter what. That is the massive difference between polyamory and polygamy and why polygamy is so fucking damaging. Oh my goodness. I talked so much about polygamy and the FLDS. I am exhausted. And I hope that all of you on Patreon enjoyed getting this episode a little bit early. For anyone who's jealous that they missed out, go to patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist and you can become a feminist fave for $8 a month or join the Angry Feminist Book Club for $5 a month. It was the feminist faves that got this episode and gets all episodes early, but usually not this early. And they also get them ad-free, which is pretty fantastic. And on Monday, after this episode is published to the rest of the world, I'm going to be popping back on Patreon for the feminist faves to give a little bit more of a recap. I am going to have to talk about polygamy a little bit more then. In the meantime, sit tight until I get that beautiful Bell Jar episode or episodes up for you all in the Angry Feminist Book Club. Thank you for hanging out and waiting for me to get that done, particularly through all of my technological problems that I've been having in the last week or so. And also, don't forget that if you become a patron between Monday, December 25th, Christmas Day, and Monday, January 1st, New Year's Day, you will receive a special present in the mail from yours truly as a thank you for becoming a member of Patreon. And one other thing that you could do for me that would just be so fantastic if it isn't too much to ask. Could you please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show? That would be really fantastic. I'd greatly appreciate it. Thank you. All right. That is all I have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.